thank you, Brother Hudson, for helping me today. Uh, my voice is, I left it at General Conference. <laughs> I, there's a song that says, I left my heart in San Francisco, yeah. well, I left my voice in Indiana. So, praise the Lord. Praise God. But it was a great General Conference. Um, this is an annual conference for the United Pentecostal Church International. It's a great time. We celebrate what God is doing uh, in UBC and in our organization. Many exciting reports, new nations being open to the gospel. Uh, I think the number was 260 nations that the, uh, the apostolic message is being preached with, Pray the Lord. with uh, missionaries and uh, then all sorts of new works being started in North America as well. It was an exciting time and a great time and I had a, a great week there and uh, back here to preach my best the best I can this morning uh, in the presence of the Lord why don't we stand and pray we're going to seek the face of God now to uh, give us direction and to help us this morning hallelujah Jesus we love you we worship you this morning Father I pray right now an anointing upon your word I pray, God, that you would help me to preach your word and what you want to say to us this morning. Lord, we're hungry for a move of your spirit. We're hungry, God, for a touch of your hand. Let your will be done this morning. Let your word go forth and transform and change us, God, and move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. We've been... We're concluding a series we've been doing on the the concept of churches, <laughs> and this is the language we sometimes use in church, and uh, that you know if you've been in church for any length of time, you become accustomed to it, even if you don't necessarily understand what exactly we're saying. Right. Uh, phrases like you know uh, this is the pulpit. Well, that's kind of a, it's not a common word used most of the time uh, if you're if you're going to talk about someone standing at a, a desk like this, it's a, a lectern or uh, something along those names, but when, when oftentimes you hear people talk about a pulpit in church, and what is that, what does that really mean? And, well, I, I, if you look it up, Google will tell you it's the place where a preacher stands and delivers a message, and someone is delivering a message from their pulpit and they have something to say they're on a pulpit they have something they want to declare to somebody but I think uh, maybe a better translation or a better definition is the place from where the preacher stands and pulls people from the pit we're going to pull you out of the pit and uh, you know we want to pull people out of the pit of discouragement we want to pull people out of the pit of hell we want to pull people out of a pit of apathy or complacency or sin uh, you know, it, it, and it's a it's a funny thing preaching. It takes many different phases, and uh, it sometimes seems a little foolish and silly at times. Preachers can get rather excited. At least in Pentecost, we we're known for our our enthusiasm when it comes to the Word of God and preaching it. And uh, but but I I read in First Corinthians chapter one verse twenty one that. God in his wisdom saw that the world would never know him through human wisdom. So he used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. 
Because to the world, what we do here seems a little silly. Yes, sir. To those who don't understand the gospel or the concept of God and his word, this idea of preaching from a stand like this, the word of God, seems a little strange and odd and what the Bible calls foolish, but it's through the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen to save those who would believe on him. Amen. And I don't think the pulpit is necessarily something we have it in a church, but in the in the early days of the apostles, the first church, they didn't have church buildings. The Bible says they met from house to house. Uh, a common study of the early church in Jerusalem, uh, the numbers are, are estimates, and uh, I don't know how they gather these numbers, but my research is, has dug up a, ver a variation of that. They believe that the church in Jerusalem was anywhere between 50 and 80,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem. Well, that's a, quite a number of yeah. people, and uh, there were no physical structures big enough to house that many people in a single gathering at that time. I was just at General Conference and there was approximately 11 to 12,000 apostolic ministers there and their families and people just from their churches and there was a time when General Conference would boast anywhere between 20 and 30,000 attendees back in the day. And uh, so that that's an impressive site to be if you ever have an opportunity to worship together and be in a service with 11,000 other believers it's going to be a very very powerful experience powerful move of God because that many people gathered together worshiping the Lord together God, God does some special things in those kinds of settings but here we have the early church they didn't have a, a, a building to to house that many believers in. And so they believe, scholars believe and teach from what they can understand of the scripture and church history and such, that they, they met in houses and occasionally would gather in larger groups, but but never to the amount where, you know, even half of 50,000 people would be present. Um, and God used preaching, preaching on the streets, preaching in homes, preaching everywhere to spread the word. The word preach is to proclaim or to announce, to publish something openly, what has been done. God told his people in Mark 16, verse 15, he said, go ye and tell the world and preach the gospel, declare it, proclaim it, deliver it to the world. Every creature, every individual, every nationality, Every, every ethnos, every, every nation, every ethnic race or group of people, they are to hear the message of the gospel through preaching. Amen. And we have these phrases in church. And sometimes we say, we say things like, that was really anointed. You might have heard someone say that. You know, someone uh, sings a song and someone was really blessed by it. And they said, well, you know, that wasn't just a good song. That was anointed. That's right. Right? That, that was anointed. So the message goes forth. And there's definitely, there's something special about what was said. What was said was good, and it was educational, and it was, it, but there was something else. There was another quality to that song, or to that message, or to that, that event, that, 
led people to believe something else was on that thing. Amen. Amen. Inspiration has many sources. While we were at General Conference, uh, we were right by the Lucas Oil Fields, which is the home of the Indiana Colts, the football team of, of the city of Indiana, the state of Indiana. And uh, this is a very, you know, football is, as, is the next religion in the U.S. On Friday, it's high school football and uh, the city classics, you know, the bands and the cheerleaders. And then Saturday is college football. And Sunday is NFL, the NFL. That's generally how it goes. And, and if, you're, if you're a good American, you're faithful to every one of those church services. <laughs> like, like you haven't seen... You, you haven't seen a high school you haven't seen a high school football stadium until you've been to the United States because they are bigger than probably what we would put up for our, our CFL uh, groups a high school football stadium is a is a real stadium like it's legit huge uh, thousands of people can sit in a high school football stadium it's a real deal and and the people that are there are jumping and shouting and screaming and taking off their shirt and painting large letters on it. And you know, there's a group of guys in the front row and they've, they've worked together to spell the word go Colts on their chest. Each one of them is a different letter of that phrase. I mean, these are passionate, enthusiastic people that are inspired by the dedication of the athletes. And by the way, those, those high school kids can play ball those guys are no, they're, they're kind of scary. You wouldn't run and run into them in the middle of the night. Those are big dudes. And, and you know, the, the, the high school bands, the marching bands, they're like synchronized. They're wearing the big feather hats. And, uh, you know, they got their drum line going. And they had some of that going on at the same time at General Conference. So we'd be walking to the convention center. And we'd be passing by these drum lines, practicing their thing. And, I mean, these guys were good. They were really good. For high school, these are high school kids. It's not like college, university. They were skilled. They were inspired by something to practice their craft and do a good job. And it was, you get goosebumps watching it. Watching, you get inspired by their dedication. But when the drum line is over and the band has played its last note, when the last touchdown has been, has been counted and the team that, that won has been declared the winner, and everybody goes home, and they, after they eat the end of the day, there is nothing left of that experience except for the good memories. Right. So is this the same thing when we have an encounter with God? When we have an encounter with God, there is something else. There's another quality to that experience. And, and music draws emotion. You can listen to a band play, you can listen to music, and it inspires you. But when there is an anointing on that music, when you listen to a message that's well-crafted, as good illustrations, makes sense, relates to your life, that can inspire you, that can encourage you. But there's got to be another layer to that whole experience to make it something memorable and and lasting because when the song is over and the preaching is finished there needs to be something that walks with you out of the building right. 
and follows you back to your house and stays with you throughout the next day. It hasn't just been one time, but it's been more than one time that I've been in a powerful service where the God moved and God's spirit was felt and we, we experienced the power of God. And the next morning I wake up and there is still that lingering presence of God. There is still that lingering touch of the Spirit of the Lord. And the Lord is still speaking to me that word that was given to me in that service. What is that quality? What is that other thing? That otherworldly element that is beyond inspiration? That is beyond just a good song or a good service? It is the anointing of the Spirit of God. The word anointing comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the word mashach, which means to smear, to pour, or to paint with oil. Oil is one of those things that when you get it on your skin, it's hard to get off. Oil is one of those things that you ever been cooking with oil or maybe working with oil in your, your garage, you know, car oil or something, and it gets on you. And no matter how much you try to wash it off, there's just still that little trace, that film of oil that stays with you. And it's, it's no wonder that the scripture would use this idea of the Spirit of the Lord and compare it to oil. It's first used when God gave his people something called the tabernacle in the wilderness. This is significant because it's the first time that God makes it a covenant with his entire nation of people. <clears throat> Before the tabernacle, God was in a relationship with people. He was in a relationship with Noah. He was in a relationship with Abraham. But when he establishes the people of Israel in the Old Testament after they've exited Egypt and they arrive at Mount Sinai, God establishes a covenant with a whole nation of people, a group of people. And he gives them something called the tabernacle. We've discussed this before, but the word tabernacle means dwelling place, the place where God's spirit lived or was, was manifested, if you will, or was seen or revealed, or his word was, was revealed or established. And it was the job of the priest to make sacrifices, offerings to the Lord in that tabernacle. And it was an important job. God wanted the highlight of importance of this job he was creating. So the high priest was the, the man that God chose from the tribe of Levi. Among the priests, there was basically, there was a number of different classes within the priesthood, but there was generally two classes. It was very simple. There was the high priest, and then there was the priests. Now, the priests were made up of all of the men of the tribe of Levi. If you were born in the tribe of Levi, uh, then you were destined to serve in the priesthood. Now, that meant you could be a number of different things. You could serve the priesthood by making the oil that was used for the anointing. You could serve the priesthood by, by being the one that serviced the animals that were kept for sacrifices for the priesthood. You could serve in the priesthood if you were musical. You would be part of the Kohathites, the tribe within the Levites that was responsible for music. 
if you were better of a laborer, skilled laborer, perhaps you would be the one that would tear down, set up, repair, build, uh, stitch up the fabric that made up the tabernacle. There was all kinds of jobs associated with the temple and the tabernacle. So if you were of the tribe of Levi, your career was set. You were destined to be part of the priesthood, but you could be any number of these different jobs. You, there was a diversity of jobs within that role as priest. But the man that was to be the high priest was selected specifically by God once a generation. And, and you could not serve as a high priest past the age of 50, from my understanding. Uh, once you turned 50, there was a, another man that came in and served as the high priest. And it was once a generation that, that the high priest was chosen by God. He would select a man. It was not based on your family. It was not based on anything. But God would select the high priest through prayer, through casting of lots. They would determine who the next high priest would be. This high priest had a special job. He would go in to the very holiest place of the temple. He was the only one allowed in. And it was there that the high priest would present the sacrifice of blood before the Lord in atonement for the sins of the people, where the sins of the people would be completely erased. A part of his job, when he first receives the job, when the lot is cast and the high priest is selected, they go through a special ceremony where they anoint the high priest. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 7, it says, You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Psalms gives us a picture of how much oil was used in this special service. Psalm 133, verse 2 says, It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Sometimes when we anoint someone with oil in church, we take a little oil and we just put it on their forehead. Right. But the way they were anointed in the Old Testament is they would take a horn full of oil and pour it on the head of the person, and that oil would run down their face, their body, their beard, their clothes, and it would run down to the bottom of their robes even down to the corners and the edges of their robe. This was supposed to be a special representation. It's hard because we're humans. And we're very literal. We're very specific. And when we see things in the natural, sometimes it can help us understand things in the supernatural. The things of the Spirit of God are not visible to the eye. God is a spirit, the Bible says. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So we can't always see what God is doing in the supernatural realm. So God will often help us by giving us a visual, a picture, to help us connect our faith to what God is doing in the invisible. This was the purpose of the anointing oil. As a result, only certain people were allowed to have this anointing oil placed on them. They say, Pastor, but couldn't anybody just go out and make the oil? Couldn't I mean oil was a common commodity in those days. 
What made the oil so special? The oil was special because the recipe was given by God. It wasn't just oil, but it was oil mixed with a bunch of different spices that made it extra special. They started with a gallon of olive oil, and then they took 12 pounds of pure myrrh, and then six and a quarter pounds of cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of calamus, and 12 and a half pounds of cassia. These, <coughs> this variety of spices, when mixed together, and obviously it wasn't the dry cinnamon you have in your cupboard, it was like the essential oils, you know, that cure all your diseases and illnesses. If you rub it on the right part of your body, it'll fix everything. I'm sorry, I'm being a little sarcastic there. But, but basically it was those essential oils of these different things that were mixed together with the anointing oil that made it special and sacred. God made it so special and so sacred that he said if anybody was found replicating this recipe for themselves, they would be killed and their houses would be burned because this was not supposed to be for everybody. This was only for a certain group of people. God wanted this to represent that his spirit was going to come on certain people for the purpose and the reason of dedicating their life to the service of God. How did they make this oil? Well, olive oil is made by crushing the olive. The olive would go into a press, and the press was, they called it a cold press. They tried to do it at the certain times of the day when it was cool, and when they could press the best kind of oil from the press. And they would use a stone that would, they'd put the oil, the olives in a press, and they'd run the stone around the press, and it would roll over the olives and crush them. And out of that crushing, the oil would be extracted from the olive. They would take the myrrh. Myrrh was like a sap that had dried on the, the trunk of a certain tree. And they would take that myrrh, and they would scrape it off, and they would they would process it down, and they had ways that was called the apothecary, or perhaps what you might call a pharmacist today. And they would, they would crush it down and process it to extract out of the myrrh the essence and the scent that comes from that myrrh. They would do the same with the cinnamon. Often it would be boiled, dried, boiled, crushed, pressed, and the essence of that cinnamon would be extracted from there. Same with calamus and same with cassia. In every one of these things, in every one of these elements that was boiled, crushed, or pressed, as they came out, they would mix it together and supply it to the priests, and the priests would use the anointing oil on the temple, on the priests, on the high priest, and on kings and prophets. These were individuals that God chose as special emissaries of his plan, of his purpose, and of his design. It was anointed for a reason. It was to represent that out of the crushing, 
out of the pressing, out of the trial, out of the, the issues of life, something sweet and beautiful could be extracted. That God could take from that crushing, God could take from that, that pressing, God could take from that, that negative thing and pull out something sweet and something anointed for his purpose. Once you were anointed, your life was that from that point dedicated to the service of God. In fact, when the Bible, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 30, verse 32, it said, It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. You shall make no other composition like it. It is holy and shall be holy to you. What I love about the study of this anointing oil was if you look at the amount of pounds. You know, if you're, anybody ever buy essential oils? Now, I like it. I like going into certain places, doctor's offices and a chiropractor's office where they're diffusing the oil. And sometimes they'll have lemon and, and uh, some kind of balm, eucalyptus maybe. It's a very, very light fragrance, very beautiful. Soothing even, relaxing, because the smell is very pleasant, it's very calming. But they say you don't need to use a lot of essential oils. In fact, if you use too much, it can be very overpowering because it's the essence of these things. And nobody ever buys essential oils by the gallon or by the pound. You buy them in little bottles about this big, right? And whenever you're putting it in your diffuser, you just put one or two drops of, of oil because that's sufficient to diffuse and it fills the whole house or the whole room or the whole office where you diffuse this smell. But did you notice how much essential oil was used in the anointing oil? Did you notice 12 pounds, 12 and a half pounds of myrrh in a gallon of oil? Six and a quarter pounds of cinnamon. That's a lot of cinnamon. Six and a quarter pounds of calamus. Twelve and a half pounds of cassia. All of these things, when they were mixed together, created such an intense fragrance that once it got onto the fabric of your garments or into the, the, the beard, it could never, ever be removed. That literally, while the priest would walk by, let's say the priest took off his official robes and he put hung them up in his closet or his bureau wherever he kept his priestly garments. And he put on the regular, the regular garments of everyday living. As he walked down the street, if they did not recognize his face, they would recognize him by the smell. They could smell the anointing on the priest. If the king ever decided to take off of his royal robes, put on his regular robes, it was said that there would be just the slightest fragrance of oil remaining on the king. He would have some, there would always be something different about him. There would always be something different. Whatever the oil touched, it changed forever. Whatever the oil was left on, it would change that thing 
forever. First Samuel 16 verse 13 says Samuel that took the horn of oil and anointed David anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. <coughs> the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. To be anointed meant that you have the supernatural aid and blessing of the spirit of God with you. And this anointing would help you to accomplish the task that God had ordained for you to complete. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the Spirit of God anointing him. And this is also a prophetic scripture because it was not just speaking of Isaiah specifically, but this was also speaking of the one, the Messiah, who would come. And Isaiah said, it's Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah declared that it was the Spirit of the Lord that was actually the thing that made the difference in his life. While there was probably an anointing moment, an oil that was placed on him, it was strictly symbolic of the Spirit of God that would come upon the life of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that it was a, a old, it was a shadow or a dim preview of the things that were to come. In Hebrews 10 and verse 1, we discover that everything in the Old Testament was just a, a shadow or a dim preview of something better that was going to come in the New Testament. This tells us that this anointing oil that was used in the Old Testament was only a shadow. For all of its wonder and all of its beauty and all of its, its togetherness that God had ordained, it was supposed to only be a shadow of something that was yet to come. It was a preview of what God really wanted to do among his people. In the Old Testament, only certain people were anointed by God to do a work for him. In the Old Testament, it was just a select few that had this special privilege of being known as one who was anointed. In the Old Testament, it was only the priests, the high priests, and the kings, and certain leaders, prophets, that would be anointed to do the work of God. But that was about to change in the New Testament. Because what God did with the few, he now wanted to do through many people. Now, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Bible says the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and people began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them 
the ability to do it, the utterance to do that. Peter stood up because it was noised abroad and they were looking at these disciples, these unlearned Galileans and Jews from all over the world were present for the Feast of Pentecost and they heard all of them speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance on the day of Pentecost in Acts 1 and Acts 2. And Peter stood up and they were wondering, they said, what is this all about? Are they drunk? Are they, they lost their mind? Peter stood up and said, no, these are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. In verse 17, he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Yes. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Amen. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Notice the terminology. The Spirit is poured out. It's akin to the same idea of pouring of the oil. As the anointing oil was poured out of the, the bottle and, and poured onto the head of the king or the priest or the, the, the prophet to be used for God. Now, the anointing, the Holy Spirit of God, is poured out upon all flesh. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit of God, the thing that fills the heart of a believer, is exactly like the anointing oil of the Old Testament. Now, if you remember, it was only the priests of the Old Testament that were anointed. It was only the prophets and the kings and the tabernacle that were anointed. Just these four things were allowed to have the anointing oil on them. So one would think, if we're gonna if we're gonna look at the modern church with the lens of the Old Testament, that only the pastor and the preachers in the church are anointed. Mm. Only those who are in leadership of the church are anointed. And even the building itself. We've really adopted this mentality, right? In, in the church, we think that only the priests, yep. the pastors, the leaders are the anointed ones. Yes, only the leaders, you know, the, the governing forces of the church are supposed to be anointed. In fact, we've gone so far as to say that the building itself is anointed, right? We, we try to show respect. We call it the house of God, the church building. In fact, it was believed at one point that church buildings had to be made of such beautiful and glorious materials. And that if your church building was not made with such glorious materials, it was not a good representation of the place where you worship God. Because after all, the temple in the Old Testament was anointed. So shouldn't the modern church be made out of great bricks, 
stained glass, have special reverence, don't cough, don't sneeze, don't drink, don't chew gum in the church. You know, don't run in the church. This is the house of God, right? You might have heard these things growing up in the church. Now you know where they come from. But in reality, if we're going to go back to the Bible, we're restorationists in this church. This church is all about restoring to the modern church what the Old Testament, what the New Testament, what the Word of God declares. We're not so much interested in following church tradition or church history. And while we can use it like a rear view mirror, just like on your car, the rear view mirror is so much smaller than the windshield you use to drive with. So that's how much emphasis we're going to be putting on church history. It's the rear view mirror, just to know where we've been and to know where we come from. But we're looking through the windshield of what God has in store for the church going forward. And so it's not, this building is not anointed. I hate to burst your bubble. The only reason pastor doesn't want you eating and drinking in the sanctuary is because the carpet's expensive. It has nothing to do with this this is a holy sanctuary. It doesn't. Because come a day when we're not allowed to meet in a building like this, we're not allowed to have a building to worship Him, we're still going to have church, and God's still going to pour out His Spirit, and they won't let us have a baptistry to baptize people. We'll find a place down in Lake Ontario and put them in the water in Jesus' name, and that lake water will do just as good of a job as a heated baptistry in a church building. This building is not anointed. It's not. There was a financial advisors that were in here before us, and who knows we'll be here when we're gone out of this place. There is nothing sacred or special about this building or this place of worship. It's not anointed. There's nothing special about the walls. We didn't buy special Holy Ghost paint to put on the walls. We didn't buy special sacred holy water chairs that you can sit on and be blessed by just sitting there. There's nothing special about the carpet. It's nothing more than you'd find in your average building. There's nothing special about it. But what's special about this place is the prayer and the worship and the moves of the Spirit of God that are going to take place here. What's going to be special about this place is seeing people walk through the door who have no connection to Christianity whatsoever. I received a word from the Lord. That God said that you need to be ready to receive all kinds of different people into this church. You need to be ready to receive people who put needles in their arms, Mm -hmm. who tattoo their bodies up right down, who don't look like Christians, who don't act like Christians. You need to be ready to receive people that walk in through the door with a burqa, fully clothed. All you can see is their eyes because God is ready to do a great work and a great revival and a great outreach. But there's nothing special. There's nothing special about this building. What's special is those of us that gather together. And the Bible says that we are not the building, but we the people are now the temple of God. We are the new tabernacle of God's presence. We are the new place where God dwells. Why do people cry when they come into a church for the first time? Why do people feel something when they walk into an apostolic service? Because they don't realize that they have walked into the place 
where God dwells. I taught a Bible study in high school, and I asked my principal, God be praised, this is amazing to me now, but my public high school principal allowed me to teach Search for Truth Bible study at high school to whoever would meet me in a certain classroom. And I was allowed to use the, the projector, allowed to use whatever materials I needed, and sometimes we'd have anywhere from 30 to 40 students gathered in that lunchroom to hear about Jesus. One particular day, I noticed a girl that had come many times over. She just cried through the whole Bible study. And she, she looked at me and she said, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's come over me. I don't do this. I don't ever cry in public. But I just can't stop the tears from flowing. And we prayed with her. I, I, I was an experienced, I was a teenager, I didn't know. Now I'd be like, raise your hands and receive the Holy Ghost. God still did a work in her heart. But that, what was going on in that setting? What was going on in that moment? It was, she was, she had entered, she didn't know it, but she walked into the presence of God. She walked into the one who had formed her in the belly. And something inside of her heart was touched. What am I talking to you about this morning? I'm talking about the anointing of God. There was nothing. I'm not a, I was not a great teacher at the time. I was a teenager. I, I could not answer most of her questions. I did not have the education or the, the wherewithal to ask, to answer her questions. I did the best I could. But I didn't really need any of that because I had the anointing of God's Spirit. But what about priests, Pastor? You said it was the priests and the kings and the prophets that were anointed. But that, that means that it's only the church leaders that are the ones, if we're going to compare apples to apples, that's church leaders only. But you need to keep reading in your New Testament Bible because the Bible, while it declares the church as the gathering of people together, it also tells you, it's at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you, the church, are a chosen generation. Amen. And not only are you a chosen generation, but the entire church God considers to be a royal priesthood. Amen. You're, you're a collection of priest kings right. when you come into the kingdom of God. That's right. That's right. When you get baptized in Jesus' name, all your sins are washed away. And you take on the name of Jesus. It's like putting on a new pair of clothes. When you receive the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives you the evidence, then you become part of that royal priesthood. Amen. You see, the priesthood of the old, they had to go through a certain ceremony. In fact, when you became a priest, you had to get baptized. They went to something called the labor of water. And you washed in the labor of water from the tops of your head down to the soles of your feet. One time only. Every priest went through the labor of water and was baptized, immersed in water, head to foot, completely in water. And when they came out of that water, then the anointing oil was poured over them. It's no strange thing that when you get into the New Testament and you get to the book of Acts, they said to Peter, men and brethren, 
what shall we do? Peter said, you need to repent and be baptized. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What's going on there? You're being inaugurated into the of God's kingdom. So every believer, you now are anointed. And guess what? Just like the anointing oil of the Old Testament had a certain smell to it. You can walk into the room of a, of a place of business and those who are sensitive to the Spirit of God will immediately sense something has walked in the room with you. Something different. There's something, I've had people walk up to me on a bus and say, there's something different about you. I don't know, do I know you? Did, have we met before? Something is different. I've even had spiritual people, you know, that are into Wicca and all that. So right. they, you have some kind of an aura around you. There's something about, I can't place it, I can't figure it out. There's just something about you. What is this uh, something about me? It's not me. I'm the vessel of clay. I've got a scratchy throat. I can barely squeeze the words out of this message here this morning. But that's okay. I don't need a perfect voice or dynamic vocal skill to preach what I've got to say because there's an anointing on what's being said because it's the Word of God. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, He shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Mark 16, Jesus saying at the same time, Mark records it a little bit differently. He says, go and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow. Shall. Shall is a declarative statement. Not maybe. Not if God wants it to. This is a definite promise from God. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. And they shall. Shall. Declarative statement. Not a maybe. Not if God desires it. It's a definite Guaranteed promise for everyone who believes shall speak with new tongues. It's a promise for every. And if you believe, the sign is going to follow you. It's going to come into your life if you believe. Because God promised that you would. These are the words of Jesus. The Bible then says they shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. We believe this is by accident, of course. We don't practice the handling of snakes right. or the drinking of poison That's on right. purpose. That's right. But there's precedent in the scripture where Paul was on the Isle uh, of Crete, I think it was. I could be wrong. And he reached into a pile of sticks to grab sticks with a fire. And the snake bit him on the hand, and he did not die. This has been also recorded in recent years. A missionary, Billy Cole, to the uh, to the nation of Thailand, who since passed away, reported a story where they were having the the Thai people are very hospitable, but they're incredibly poor, and the best way that they know how to show you honor is to cook you a meal. Brother Cole and his wife were there preaching, and the Thai people decided they were going to hold a banquet in their honor. 
And the Thai people scraped together their last bits of rice and beans and pieces of meat and created as much of a feast as they could muster. And Sister Cole was helping to string up some lights for this, this banquet party. And while she was doing it, a cobra, King Cobra, snuck out of the, the, the corner of the fence line where she was and bit her on the leg. And if you know anything about King Cobras, they're some of the venomous, most venomous snakes in the world. And you can be dead within a matter of minutes. And she did not swell up. She just kind of kicked the thing off to the side. And the men came around and killed the snake. And she just kept on working, kept stringing up the lights. And the, the people were so amazed. How did she not die? She was bitten by the most venomous snake in, in Thailand. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. It's what the Bible says. That serpents, you take up serpents, and it wouldn't touch you. If you're doing the work of God, the hand of God's protection shall be on you. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. They shall recover. What am I trying to say to you this morning? What is it when we say to someone's anointed, we mean that they have the Holy Ghost on their life? I want to be anointed, not just once, but I need to be anointed every single day. I need to be anointed every single day. Did you ever notice how Jesus, before he was crucified, went to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you know what Gethsemane means? Olive press. Jesus went to the garden of the olive press. It was an olive orchard. It's still there today. You can go visit the garden of Gethsemane. And it was there that Jesus prayed a prayer. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Jesus surrendered himself to the plan of God that ultimately meant his death on the cross. And it was in this olive press that Jesus was pressed in the spirit. So much so that the Bible says blood and water came out of his pores. He sweat great drops of blood. Medical science will tell you that when someone sweats drops of blood, that that is an indication that the, the, the membrane around the heart has ruptured and the blood is escaping from the heart and is mingling into the pores of that person and they literally sweat blood out of their skin because their heart has ruptured inside of their chest cavity. And it's only a matter of hours before they will succumb to a slow death of bleeding internally. Was Jesus killed by the nails in his hands and feet? No. He, was, he died in the garden when he prayed, Not my will, God, but your will be done. You want the anointing of God on your life. Do you want that power of God working in you to change, literally change the atmosphere of your home, change the atmosphere of your workplace, change the outlook you have on life, then you need to go to a place of prayer and say, God, I don't know what you want out of my life, but not my will, Sister Christ, if you come, but your will be done. 
if you've never received the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. It's not complicated. The Bible calls it a gift. You can simply repent of your sins and begin to worship God and fully surrender yourself to Him at that moment and say, God, whatever you want out of my life, I'm willing to do it. Whatever you want out of my life, I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to do what you want. I just want your anointing upon my life. You'll never regret it. As you pray, I believe God's Spirit will come upon you and you can begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives you the utterance. It doesn't have to be a large fanfare, but you do have to actually open your mouth and talk to Him. How else are you going to speak in tongues? And you can do that in your seat. But I think it's better if we come around an altar and pray together. Sometimes there's something special about stepping out of your comfort zone, stepping out of your seat where you're seated, and coming around to an altar. Is there anything special about this altar? No more than there's anything special about the, the water you're baptized in. But there's a, there's a sense of change when you leave where you're seated and you walk to somewhere new. It's like physically walking closer to Jesus. Is Jesus any more up here than he is back there? No. But there's just something special about stepping out of your zone and coming and praying together. Another benefit of praying around the front is that someone can lay hands on you. What's the significance of that, Pastor? The Bible talks about you can be laid hands on to receive the Holy Ghost. Someone can lay hands on you and pray the prayer of faith and you can be healed of a sickness. You can receive prayer for encouragement around this altar. There's something special about coming and gathering together to pray. So would you come as we pray and close today? Would you pray and seek God for his anointing on your life? Maybe you've already received the Holy Ghost. Maybe you've already spoken in tongues. But maybe you just need a refreshing and a renewing of the Spirit in your life. If you've never received the Holy Ghost, I urge you to come today. Pray and seek God. Believe that he'll fill you and receive that gift of his Spirit. In Jesus' name.